Our scripture this morning is from Exodus chapter 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then her, her, his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked them, he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flocks. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out, and their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. 
before we get into this text, I want to deal with the, uh, the elephant in the room, which is what happened to my arm. The beginning of November, I was doing some training of pastors in Southeast Asia. And after a few days of training, they had scheduled an outreach in their community using soccer. Now, I used to play soccer. I was a goalie. I thought they invited me to play. I thought, uh, how hard could this be? And uh, so I, I got in net. But uh, it was a little more uh, organized of a game than I expected. Very nice field. Everyone was wearing uniforms. That should have been a clue. Uh, and one of the first plays of the game, the other team has a breakaway. They come down, and uh, this guy fires a shot. I dive to stop the shot, extend my left arm. The shot hit the inside of my elbow, and I heard a pop and uh, felt quite a bit of pain. And uh, then my whole arm started trembling, and I wasn't sure exactly what happened. But when I looked later, I noticed my bicep had uh, kind of shriveled up and was down up near my shoulder. And uh, so I, I, I actually ended up tearing my bicep tendon off the elbow. Um, didn't quite know what was happening at the time. Um, some have said, you never really had much of a bicep to start with, so what's your problem? Uh, which is a good point. But I did ask my wife, she said, let's try to save it. <laughs> so that's what we uh, that's what we did. I came back from this trip. I've been in a couple of countries after that doing ministry, and we, we came back at the end of November. It had been about four weeks since the injury, and actually there wasn't a lot of pain. So I went to physio, and I just thought, you know, we'll get some treatment and we'll get on with it. They, look, they looked at the arm. They took one look at it. They said, get into emergency right now. So I, I spent the day in emergency, finally saw a doctor in the evening. He wasn't very encouraging. He said, it's, it's too late. Uh, probably this will be a difficult repair. We might have to use a hamstring tendon. Um, plus, I don't know when you're going to get surgery. And anyways, I left pretty discouraged. Um, that weekend, on Sunday morning, I was praying and it just felt the Lord say, uh, call other people to pray. So I put out a WhatsApp message to a bunch of my friends around the world. And I just said, here's the story with my arm. Uh, please pray that God does a miracle and opens a door for treatment. And uh, I got text back immediately. Within seconds, people were pinging me back from all over. Some of them were in training schools, and uh, they, the whole school would be praying for God to intervene. Fifteen minutes after I sent that text, I got a call from Abbotsford Hospital. And an ultrasound tech in the back there in their imaging department was going through a stack of files. He saw my file from my visit to the emergency two days before, he pulled that file randomly, he looked at it, he called me up on my cell phone. He said, how fast can you get in here? I said, I'll be there in five minutes. So early Sunday morning, I raced into the hospital. I literally ran from my car to the front doors. I passed people that I saw later in the imaging department waiting room. The, all the machines were scheduled in advance, fully scheduled. He squeezed me in before his day started. I sat at the machine. He looked at my arm. He said, yeah, your distal tendon, your 
bicep tendon is completely severed from the elbow and you need surgery. The guy to do it is Dr. Wickham. He's the best in town. His assistant is a good friend of mine. I'm going to call her. I'm going to get you in. I got a little emotional at that point. I said, do you, really, do you, do you believe in prayer? He said, uh, he didn't say anything. He actually just looked down. He said, are you involved in missions? I said, yeah, I am. He said, my sister flies a missions plane. That's what he calls it in Africa. He himself wasn't a person of faith, but I said, you are a part of a miracle, I believe, that God's doing for me right now. I ended up getting a call from Wickham's assistant on Monday. I saw him on Wednesday. Surgery was scheduled uh, later that month. And on December 22nd, I had this arm repaired. And uh, I just want to give glory to God. This is my Christmas miracle. Pray for Sonny. Sonny's the ultrasound tech. And I believe that God's speaking to him. I'm believing that God wants to reach that young man with the gospel. Now this speaks to my first point in our text today, and that is that God has a plan. God has a plan for my life. God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for Central Heights Church. God has a plan for David Morelli's life. As we've commissioned him as our new lead pastor this morning, God's brought him to the point of leadership here because God has a plan. And as we look at our text, we see the story of God. We see the hand of God in the midst of all of the challenges and the struggles and the pain of this story. When Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe and she saw a basket and a crying baby in the basket, God had a plan. And when she rescued that baby and she took that baby and raised her as her own son, as a prince of Egypt, God had a plan. And when that young boy grew up to be a man and he was trained in the finest schools and education of his day, God had a plan. And later, when Moses saw his fellow Hebrews being oppressed and he saw a slave driver beating another, you know, one of his Hebrew uh, people, and he, in anger, intervened and killed that slave driver and buried him. God had a plan. Then when he fled as a fugitive from Egypt and spent 40 years in the desert tending sheep and goats, learning about his own heart and learning about God, God had a plan. And later, we'll read of how God used him to bring freedom and liberation to his people, as promised. You see, more than 400 years, more than 500 years before Exodus 2 happens, God spoke to Abraham in a covenant ceremony. You can read about it in Genesis 15. And God said, your people are going to spend 400 years in a foreign land, and I'm going to bring them out with my outstretched arm. I'm going to bring them back to this land because I promised you this land. God has a plan. Not God had a plan. 
God has a plan for you and for me. And if we'll offer ourselves to him, we'll find ourselves uh, experiencing God's direction, his provision, and his plan. A year and a half ago, my daughter married Jacob, Jacob Gebrewald. Jacob's family comes from Ethiopia. Jacob's father was a refugee in Ethiopia. An amazing story. We had the opportunity to host them. We've had a number of visits with them. The first visit we had, they were in our house and we were having dinner together. And uh, I just, uh, I asked Ash, that's Jacob's father's name is Ash. I said, Ash, uh, you know, tell me about your story, how you got out of uh, Ethiopia. He said, I was brought up during the communist era. And I realized this regime, after a while, he said, this regime is brutal. And uh, he was in the Air Force, and he talked three of his buddies into uh, escaping the country. And so they hired a human smuggler to take them to Eritrea. Only this guy double-crossed them, and they ended up in, uh, uh, he took them to Somalia instead, pointed them over a mountain, said, go over the top of that pass, and you'll be in Eritrea. It was, it was Somalia, the country they were at war with. So these guys figured out pretty quickly, this is, this is dangerous. We're in Somalia. They buried their dog tags, uh, but they were discovered, arrested, and taken to a concentration camp. In that concentration camp, um, they, they kill you slowly. And so that was, what, uh, that was what was happening. One day, a team of, uh, from UNHCR, UN Human Rights Commission, um, came in to audit the human rights abuses in that uh, camp. And uh, they interviewed a bunch of people. They interviewed Ash. And Ash slipped them a note. And the note was addressed to the Canadian Embassy in Nairobi. And it said, I'm here from Ethiopia. I shouldn't be here. Um, I just, uh, I'm asking for uh, help in getting out of this uh, concentration camp. And uh, so it was a plea, a desperate plea for intervention. One year later, he said, a team from the Canadian Embassy in Nairobi came to this camp and gave me and my three friends tickets to Canada. At this point, I, um, I had to confess um, that I wasn't quite believing what he was saying. <clears throat> because my brother's a diplomat, and I know that this never happens. This, this never happens. Diplomats don't go to concentration camps and give people tickets to go to Canada. This doesn't happen. This is in the early 80s, and uh, this is Ash's testimony. He landed in Saskatoon in the middle of winter, of course, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Wally Nickel, a Mennonite in a church in Saskatoon who had sponsored them, saw Ash was overwhelmed with uh, the whole experience of coming to this new country in the middle of winter, and he had no clothing uh, to handle the cold, and so Wally Nickel took his coat, his winter coat, and he put it around Ash's shoulders. He gave him his coat, and he said, welcome to Canada. That transformed Ash's life. Ash was trained as a nurse, became a nurse at the Vancouver General Hospital and worked there for 25 years. He raised a family in Vancouver, which included my future son-in-law, Jacob. 
a month after I heard that story, actually, when Ash was still sitting in my kitchen or my living room and uh, talking about this, I asked him point blank, I said, who got you out of that concentration camp? He put his head down, thought about it. He looked up at me, said, God. I said, that's the only reasonable answer. God is the one who delivered you. Not the Canadian government. God delivered you sovereignly from that camp. So one month after I hear that story, I'm sitting down with uh, my friend Frank uh, Art DeFair in Winnipeg. And Art is, uh, Art, Art owns a furniture uh, manufacturing company called Palliser Furniture. And uh, he's, he's been involved in refugee policy in Canada. He's worked with UN agencies and stuff. And so I was telling him this story. And I said, Art, you were involved in refugee work in Somalia, weren't you? He said, yeah, I was in charge of UNHCR in Somalia. I said, what years? He said, 81 to 84. I said, Art, that's the exact time that my future son-in-law's father was in that camp. Did you ever send audit teams into prisons? He said, yeah, we did. I said, you sent an audit team into a concentration camp in Somalia that then took a note from my future son-in-law's father to the embassy in Nairobi that got him out of that camp. You're a part of this whole story. That's when I got a little emotional at dinner. And I realized that God wanted me to hear that part of the story. And he wants you to hear that as well. Why? God has a plan. God has a plan in the most desperate of circumstances. When it looks like there's nothing but darkness and death, God has a plan. I'm not sure what you're going through this morning, what your situation is, but hear this. God has a plan. Secondly, we live in a world of pain. As we look at Exodus 2, we see that babies are being slaughtered. We see that a nation is being enslaved. We see that people are fleeing from injustice. Refugees are on the run. What's changed? What's changed? That sounds like reading the front page of the paper today, doesn't it? Babies being slaughtered, nations enslaved, refugees on the run. We're living Exodus 2 again and again and again all over the world. Why? We live in a world of pain. That's part of our human condition. You know, this Christmas, we were contacted by some of the friends of the Afghan families that we sponsored here at Central Heights Church. There's 20, 25 families living in a park in Islamabad, Pakistan. They're living in tents. They have nothing. They fled across the mountains from the Taliban who are hunting and oppressing and killing Christians. This group reached out to us, shared some video footage of their current circumstances as we prayed about it as a family, we decided this Christmas, our Christmas gift would be to bless these families. And so that was what we did for Christmas this year. And the last clip that you're going to see now in a montage of clips is the, uh, the little room that they were able to secure a dry place. 
where they, in gratitude, had a happy birthday Jesus party. Let's take a look at those clips and that story just for a, a few minutes here. Slavery has got to be one of the worst forms of pain. I've been reading John Meacham's recent biography of Abraham Lincoln called, And There Was Light. And he describes slaves fleeing from plantations, heading up to Washington, only to be uh, recaptured and shackled and taken back to their plantations with uh, Lincoln and others, abolitionists, being powerless to do anything about, about it in the 1830s and 40s. And uh, it took 30 years for an anti-slavery law to be enacted, uh, which, in the Civil War as well, of course, um, for, for that whole practice to be uh, stopped. Um, there was a, a society that was formed in Philadelphia called the American Anti-Slavery Society. And it was was formed on the basis of convincing our citizens, quote, by arguments addressed to their understandings and consciences that slaveholding is a heinous crime in the sight of God, end of quote. You know, it took another 30 years for slaveholding to be outlawed in the U.S. and a whole civil war which took many, many people's lives. And I think most of us would agree that there's still work to be done on that front. The pain of slavery is something that the Bible tells us we can all relate to. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 says that we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has been, uh, been, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. The Bible says we are slaves to sin. We're born slaves to sin. Now, if you go into the uh, Museum of uh, Human Rights there in Winnipeg, you're going to see banners and slogans all over the place that state in huge letters. We are all born free. The Bible would beg to differ. Many in this room today are in pain. Why? Because of sin. In particular, bondage to secret sin. Sin causes pain. And sin is endemic in the human race. We live in a world of pain because we live in a world of sin. Now, we don't have slavery here in BC, do we? 
or do we? I read an interesting article in National Post last week. It was quoting a researcher from the University of Waterloo School of Public Health, and she was critiquing our safe supply injection sites here in, in uh, BC. So she's a researcher in this area, and uh, she was looking at the recent decision here to eliminate the database created by one of the UBC profs who's been studying homelessness and, and in particular addictions here in BC. And uh, his name is um, Dr. Summer. So with, with the support of the government, he has developed over the last 10 years the most extensive database of homeless people, their addictions and their treatments and the outcomes of those treatments. And this database has been used by governments to justify and, and uh, create rationale for all kinds of policies. It's been accessed by researchers all across Canada and around the world. And it was one of the basis for the uh, safe supply of, uh, of injections um, in the first place. But as his research has continued, he has definitively proved that safe supply is not working. And in response to that, our government here has shut down his database and all research connected to it. And she, meaning Dr. Kelly Anthony from Waterloo, is critiquing that decision. Here's what she says, quote, she believes safe supply is poorly researched and consigns the addict to be a slave forever. You put a bunch of people who are addicted into a community and you give them a free supply of drugs and you don't deal with the root of their pain, which they are medicating, you will not get behavior changes. She cites the example of Portugal, which BC often cites as an example of safe, safe supply, and yet we're not doing the one thing they do in Portugal, the most important thing, which is they take addicts and they put them in families and in communities, not together, but in communities where they're given opportunities to work through their issues and find hope and a future. Without that essential component, our strategy is not working. Slavery comes in many different forms, doesn't it? You know, my story of pain in this last few months has been very physical. And again, pain comes in many different definitions, emotional, spiritual, many different kinds of pain. My story has been very physical. And when the surgery happened, you know, the surgeon took the end of my tendon, the distal end of my tendon, wrapped it in thread, drilled a hole through my elbow bone, fed the tendon down through it, put a pin on the end so it didn't come back up through the hole, then took a screw and screwed it in there to try to lock it into the bone. Now I gotta wait a couple of months for that screw, that tendon, to grow into the bone. I can tell you exactly where that screw hole is right now. It hurts. And when you're in surgery, Apparently they're giving me fentanyl. Yes, I have been on fentanyl. And uh, they use it as a, as a surgical kind of uh, aid. I came out of surgery a little loopy, as uh, any of you have experienced, uh, know all about. 
and uh, they gave me some hydromorphine and for the pain afterwards. And so I took that for two days, but I, I hated the side effects. I hated the side effects of the medications. They seemed to be more aggravating than the pain itself. So I weaned myself off all the pain meds because I wanted to track my healing journey. Even though it hurt, I want to track the progress of healing. Sometimes you need to feel the pain to be able to know where you are on the healing journey. What are you using to medicate your pain? You know, sometimes our pain can cause us to cry out to God. That's the story of the Israelites. It says in the last two verses of chapter 2 of Exodus 2, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. You know, that word for cry is not like a few crocodile tears, some whimpering. That word would be better translated howl. That's the howl of an anguished heart in pain. The Israelites howled out to God. And God saw them. And the word saw is the word ra'ah. God didn't just see them. He saw them at the depth of understanding. He understood why they were howling. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham over 500 years before. And God remembered. And God heard. And God saw and God was moved. His heart was concerned. God moved in response to the howl of pain in the Israelites' lives. Have you ever howled out in pain before God? Have, have you ever taken your pain and brought it before God? I want you to know that God sees the reason for your pain. He hears and his heart is moved. He wants to heal. He wants to deliver. He wants to transform us. That's why he sent his son. He sent his son in the form of a baby into this painful world. In vulnerability, God had a response to our pain and our sin. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5 says, Surely, this is again spoken by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus came. He said, surely he, meaning the Messiah, Jesus, took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him to be punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You know, the Bible says, when Jesus returns again, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things will have passed away. God will make all things new. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was crushed for our iniquities? You know, Revelation 22 verse 2 says that there's going to be a river flowing down through the center of this city of God and there's going to be trees of life on both sides and they're going to produce fruit and for the food but also their leaves are for the healing of the nations. Their leaves are for the healing of the nations. Since the beginning of time, medicine has been formed or made from the crushing of leaves. Jesus is the tree of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the life. He is the eternal life. And God allowed his eternal life, his son, to be crushed for our iniquities so that he would become good medicine for you and for me. In the midst of our pain, God has medicine. And his name is Jesus. If you're howling in your pain before God, I want you to know there's medicine available and his name is Jesus. You know, sometimes God allows us to experience pain, not just so that we receive healing from him, but that we become ambassadors of his message and his medicine to the world. One of my colleagues in Ethiopia, in a Muslim region of Ethiopia called Afar, was doing church planting, and the community was not interested in hearing the gospel, and so they stoned him. They literally beat him and then stoned him and left him for dead outside the village. He didn't die. He wanted to run away. The Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, stay. Can you imagine? The community has almost killed you, and the Holy Spirit says, stay. There's more work I want you to do here. So he goes back into the village. He nurses himself back to health. And uh, he hears about a young woman who's on her deathbed. She's very sick. And he goes and inquires of the family, can I pray for her healing? They're desperate. They say yes. So he prays in Jesus' name for her healing. And he shares the gospel with this family. And that young 20-year-old woman gave her life to Christ on her deathbed. She wasn't healed. Before she died, she begged her father, a Muslim man, please give me a Christian burial, a Christian funeral. He agreed. She died. As this father's wrestling with how to do this, to honor his daughter, he didn't know any Christians. 
He didn't know anyone who could perform a Christian burial. So he called this church planter and he said, uh, could, you, could you do a burial for my daughter, a funeral for my daughter? He agreed. The whole village came to that funeral. This church planter preached the gospel. He preached the healing medicine that's only found in Jesus. And 17 people that day gave their lives to Christ. A church was planted in that village. Today, there's over 30 baptized believers in that village, and they are sharing the message of Jesus, good medicine, with their neighbors. Sometimes, God allows pain in our lives so that he can use us for his redemptive purposes. God has a plan. We live in a world of pain. And thirdly, God prepares people to join his plan. God prepares people to join his plan of salvation, redemption, and transformation in this world. There's a process of preparation that God has in our lives that God had in Moses' life. Was Moses' birth into the tribe of Levi a coincidence? How about his adoption as a prince of Egypt? Coincidence? How about his training in the Egyptian court? Coincidence? No. His banishment from Egypt, the pain of that whole journey out into the wilderness, was that a coincidence? No. God was preparing Moses for his future leadership role. In fact, you can see in Moses' story, each of the chapters was preparing him for the next chapter. God has a plan for each one of our lives, and he prepares us to be uh, more fruitful, more effective, more uh, engaged and useful in his plan as we offer ourselves to him. God's plan is a plan of salvation, not just for Israel out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, but for every nation out of the bondage and slavery of sin into the joy and the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. Each stage of Moses' life prepared him for the next stage, and so it is with us. Our experiences this year are going to prepare us for what God has in store for us in the future. If you look at Moses' life, it seems the preparation happened in 40-year chapters. His first 40 years in the court, in the family of Pharaoh, and then the next 40 years in the wilderness with uh, Jethro and his family, learning to be a shepherd, learning to care for sheep, but also, more importantly, learning about his own heart, what was going on inside of him. And then the last 40 years of leadership under, uh, under God's hand, delivering his people out of, out of Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, leading a nation. Looking back on your story, my story, I think we will find that God uses chapters in our story as well. I was talking over this, uh, this over with my friend Doug Penner, who attends here, and uh, Doug's big on this 
on this uh, motif or this, uh, this theme of chapters in our, our life story. And I was reflecting on it with him in my own story. And I, I think God has had 15 year chapters in my story. After I gave my life to Christ, that first season, I felt the Lord calling me to be a Joshua. And I was leading many young people in mission and in service. And uh, at one point, you know, we had over 1,000, 1,200, 1,300 young people being trained every year in, in service. And, and the, the picture was, was a call to be a warrior. And then I felt the Lord on a retreat saying, I'm changing your name. Your name is now David, it's no longer Joshua. And so in that next season, I was leading. And my job actually changed. Soon after that, I was leading Multiply, MB Mission at the time. And uh, for 15 years, I was leading um, uh, work around the world. I was both a warrior and uh, I, had, I had leadership um, in, in an operational capacity. And then I just felt, again, a couple of years ago, God's saying, I'm changing your name. Your name is now Paul. I want you to lay apostolic foundations in the body of Christ around the world. Well, I was still working at Multiply at the time, and I had no idea how that was going to happen, but God made it very clear my time was up. And uh, when the transition happened a year and a half ago, um, I stepped into a role that was fully prepared for me. And I've been walking in that, and I'm so aware that everything I'm walking in right now God prepared me to, uh, to experience in the prior chapters of my story. God has a plan. In the midst of the pain of our world and our own personal pain, God wants us to know he's preparing us to be even more effective and more fruitful in the next chapter of our story. Do you believe that? I was talking with David Morelli about this, and <clears throat> he said, yeah, I can see it. I can see it in my own story. As God is preparing me for this role here at Central Heights, my first 10 years, he, he, would, he would call performance, where he was, he was focused on hockey at the elite levels. He was captaining teams. He was learning about leadership. He was learning about teamwork, about perseverance, character stuff, but he was really about performance. Um, and uh, it was a lot about himself. And then there's a 10-year chapter of pain where God allowed failure in his life and, and he experienced just great brokenness and God used that to bring him to himself. In the midst of his pain, God was doing a work in David, softening and, and calling him to surrender his will, surrender his pain. And, uh, and then there was a third 10-year chapter of preparation that included seminary and training theoretically, but also training here at Central Heights in his roles that he's been serving in until now. Ten years of, of, of preparation. Each one of those three chapters preparing him for this next chapter of leadership here. God's not just preparing David Morelli here at Central Heights. He's preparing every one of you and me to be more fruitful in the season ahead. Can you see the preparation of God in your story? Why don't you take some time just to reflect back on your story? You might be helped by doing this with a spouse or with a friend, but just go back and storyboard your story with God. It might be from the point you gave your life to him, but it could even precede that. And look for a pattern, look for chapters, look for themes, 
and look for how God has used each one of those chapters to prepare you for what he has in store for you in this chapter or the chapter ahead. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God it has a work that is a creative work, a creative work he was doing with Israel, with Moses, with you and with me, like an artist drawing a picture or a craftsman building something. God says, you are my handiwork. And there are stages to God's work in our lives. Philippians 2, 13 says the same thing, for, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We are being prepared by God to be more effective in his purposes, his salvation purposes here on earth. God has a plan. We live in a world of pain, but God prepares people for his purposes to respond to this pain with his plan of salvation, with his plan of transformation, with his plan of healing. And it's our privilege, like Moses, to offer ourselves to God and to say, here I am, I'm available. With my wounds, with my slings, with who I am, I'm available to be used by you. On this commissioning Sunday, as we have commissioned David as the new lead pastor here at Central Heights, I want to invite you to offer yourself to God, to be recommissioned for God's purposes through your life. Will you say yes to that? As we pray, I want to invite you to offer yourself to God for his purposes, for his plan, for his will to be done in your life. Our prayer Every day, Jesus said, is to, is to be your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. This is our destiny, friends. This is the only thing that matters. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. You entered this world of pain and you came in vulnerability and humility you took your pain, our pain, upon yourself. You took it to a cross and you nailed it there. And you paid the price for our sin. You offered healing from that pain through your death, through your resurrection. And we just say thank you for that. And Father, today I pray that if anyone's listening or watching this and they have pain that is now uh, uh, just consuming them, I ask, Lord, that their howl, their cry would come before you. And the Lord, they would take their pain and they would call out to you with that pain. And Father, I know that your eyes are on them, that you hear and your heart is moved. And I pray that there would be an exchange, an exchange with, with you, our pain, for your healing, which is Jesus. 
Would you lift and remove the pain, the pain of sin, the pain of uh, whatever bondage people are in? Would you release and heal and deliver people who are crying out to you today? And Father, for some of us who've walked with you and known your good medicine for many years, I ask, Lord, for faith to rise in our hearts, for new faith to see our stories from your perspective. I pray, Father, for faith to offer ourselves to you again, recognizing that you've got a good purpose and plan for our lives. And Father, I, I just ask for the recommissioning of anyone who's offering themselves to you today. Anyone who's saying, God, here's my life. I offer it to you. I pray that you'd commission them, much as you commissioned Moses, much as you've commissioned people throughout the word of God, that you'd place your hand on their lives and let them know that their lives have eternal value and impact. And I ask, Father, for the prophetic purposes that you've determined to accomplish through our lives to be fulfilled. I pray that you'd speak your purposes to the hearts of those who are saying yes to you today. You would give them clarity around what their call is, what their best contributions are in your kingdom. Thank you, God, for all that you want to do in us and through us for your glory. I ask you to seal these words. May the enemy not snatch this away. In Jesus' name, amen.